I get the opportunity to wrap up this series, this messy faith series. And for the last month and a half or so, we've been tracking through the life of Abraham and Sarah as it's kind of laid out for us in the, in the book of Genesis. And as we've been reading about kind of the ups and downs in their journey, uh, at least a verse that's just kind of stuck out in my mind is actually a verse found in Hebrews, right? And in Hebrews, it says that by faith, Abraham obeyed God, that God said to go and Abraham obeyed, that Abraham and Sarah are marked as people of faith. And yet, as we've seen in this series, we've gone through that oftentimes uh, they don't exhibit a ton of faith. And I think one of the things that it's really reminded me and encouraged me by is that this reminder that failing in life does not make us failures, that God can use broken people, people with failures in their life for, for his purpose. Um, this last week, though, I got an email from a, a friend of mine, and he said, hey, I think maybe you've been a little bit hard on Abraham in this series. I think, you know, you're kind of coming down on him a little tough. And my initial response was, yeah, because he's done some really jacked up stuff. Like, he deserves it. And, but then I decided, okay, I'll take this, you know, I'll, I'll take this seriously. So what I did is I went through my Bible and I read uh, the, the narrative again. And every time that Abraham or Sarah kind of confessed their trust and their faith to God, I put a star by it. And over and over, I'd come to these various places where, um, where they would see what God was doing in their life, what God would promise to them, and they would set up an altar to say, okay, at this point, we know that God is true. Or they'd go through um, these various things, whether it was building altars. At one time, they built a, planted a tree, um, these confessions of prayers, even uh, ceremonial circumcision, right? Like all of these different steps in their life where they were putting their trust in God, even in the ups and the downs. And as I look back through my Bible, what I began to see is all these stars throughout their life. And I saw this this thread of faithfulness that God was weaving out in their life, uh, taking them from being people of very messy faith to people of solid faith. And, And so just to kind of give you kind of a summary of some of the things I saw So we saw right up at the beginning, God calls Abraham. He says, hey, I want you to leave this land where you're comfortable. Leave this land where you're content, where you've got things kind of worked out, your family and all that. And I want you to go to this promised land. And Abraham obeys. He goes down to the promised land. He gets to the promised land. And God again meets with them. says, hey, this is the land I'm calling you to. I want you to be a blessing to all people out of this area. So he establishes an altar there. And that way he can remember that this is the place where I met with God and God has promised. And he goes up into the mountains a little bit, kind of the hill country, and he establishes another altar. He says, this is a place I know that God is real. God is working in my life. Then there's that whole fiasco that we looked at where he goes down into Egypt and completely um, just kind of abandons his faith, kind of puts it on the shelf for a little bit, and, it, and God rescues him and Sarah in a really amazing way and brings them back to the land. And him and his nephew, Lot, they sort of divide up territory a little bit. And again, God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. So Abraham, again, he, he builds an altar to remember. A little bit later, uh, Abraham's kind of having some conflict with some of the local tribal leaders. And the local tribal leaders kind of come to Abraham and they say, hey, we want to offer you a treaty because we can tell that God is working in your life. So we're going to offer you this treaty. And Abraham, again, wants to remember that God is faithful to him. So what does he do? 
He plants a tree. He's getting old, moving rocks is heavy. I don't know why, but he goes with the tree option here. But over his life, you see all these points that he's remembering God's promise. And then I was just thinking about the fact that Abraham is a relatively nomadic guy probably, right? He's got livestock and he's taking them around to the different watering holes and moving from this place to that place. And as he's traveling around with his friends, with the people that work for him, with his, his son Isaac, I would imagine he comes to places. He's like, hey, Isaac, see those rocks over there? It was in this valley that God met with me and promised to bless me and to bless us and that we are to be a blessing to the world. This is what that valley represents. Or you see that tree over there. That is how I know that the Lord God is almighty, that he is providing for me. And he had these constant reminders in his life. And it grew him and it strengthened him. And then we come here to verse 22. I'm sorry, chapter 22 in the book of Genesis. If you want to start turning there, that's, that'd be cool. And um, God offers a test to Abraham. In fact, it tells you right at the beginning of this, it says, uh, it says, after all these things, God, I'm sorry, after these things, God tested Abraham. So right away, as readers, we, we see this, we need to see the rest of this context within this environment of this being a test, that God is putting this challenge in front of Abraham, and it's going to test Abraham's faith. It's going to test, okay, all of those times where I've reaffirmed that I trust God, that I believe that he will provide for me, that I am confident in who he is, am I going to trust those things? Am I going to have faith in those things? So let's, let's read this. But as we're reading this, one um, kind of caution or one uh, thing I'd like to ask from you is this passage brings up a lot of really deep and heavy questions. There's going to be questions of why would God allow this to happen? Why would God do this? What is going on here? Why, how does this make sense? And we're going to try to get to some of those questions um, towards the end of this message. But this passage is one of the most descriptive passages in the whole book of Genesis. It goes into incredible detail about like how they cut firewood and saddled up the donkeys and all these things. But it has almost no details as to kind of the emotion or what's going through Abraham and his son Isaac's mind. And I think God did that in such a way so that when we would read this narrative, we would begin to kind of put ourselves into this place. We'd begin to, to, to sense it, to feel it, to kind of understand the surroundings. And we, for ourselves, could kind of process what would be going through Abraham's mind. So as we read it, I want to just challenge you to read it First, from that perspective, and then we will go back and ask those kind of deeper theological questions about what is God doing here and why is this, how does this make sense? So, starting in verse 1 here, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said. Abraham says, Here am I. Then God says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice, burnt offering, on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy will go over there and worship, and will come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said to him, here I am, my son, he said. Behold, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering instead of a son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So here we have this this narrative. It's rich, right? It causes you to think. It causes you to, to challenge. Go, wow, what would I do? How would I respond in that situation? And what would I be, be thinking? So we have Abraham. Abraham, at this point in his life, is at a pretty stable place from what we, what we know, what we understand. He's got quite a few possessions. He's a relatively wealthy person. He's living at peace with his neighbors He has this son who he's been waiting for for years. He's been praying for, and God has provided this son for him, and things are going pretty well. And one day, he's out. We don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's out taking care of the animals or just going out and walking around, and and, and he hears this voice, a voice from God that says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham responds in, I think, just a great gesture of faith. He says, here am I, This, this for this, these words of availability. Okay, here I am, God. And God says to Abraham, he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love. That's interesting. You probably, if you know this story, you probably think for a second, go away. he had two sons, didn't he? And the one son he kind of disowned. And, and I think what this is getting at here is this is the son that, that your promise, your lineage your future counts on, the son that you've been waiting for your entire life, your most valuable piece of your life. I want you to take that son and I want you to head out to Moriah. And when you get there, I'm gonna tell you what mountain to go to. It's interesting that God doesn't even fill in all the details. He doesn't tell him exactly where to go or what to do. He just says, I want you to head in this direction and when you get there, I'm gonna tell you what to do and you're going to sacrifice your son. And I'm sure at that point, Abraham was going, what? You've promised me this child. I've been waiting my entire life for him, and now he's here, and you have promised me even that you are going to bless the nations through this person, that he's going to be a blessing to the world. You're going to make a great nation through him. What is going on here? Why would you ask me to give this up, God? And I think as you think through that, I mean, what a... 
incredible ask. What a crazy thought. I mean, we're, some of you are celebrating Lent, and I'm sure you've given up different things for Lent. Maybe it's wine or chocolate or something like that. And you go, okay, I'm doing this for you, God. I'm going to give this up. And that's, those are great things. But that is nothing even com- remotely comparable to what this is, right? This is his son who he loves. And we don't know what happened the rest of that day. We know that he went to bed that night because it says he woke up early the next morning. So the rest of that day plays out. He's processing this. He's trying to just kind of think through this. That night, I would imagine he laid in bed, not able to sleep. In fact, when it says he woke up early the next morning, I catch the vibe that it's probably because he didn't sleep very well the night before. He gets up early the next morning. He says, okay, we're going. And he gets two of the guys that work for him. He grabs his son. He says he physically goes over and he saddles up his donkey and then he goes out and cuts firewood, which I found kind of interesting as I was reading through that. It's like, I wonder this rich guy, how often he went out and cut his own firewood. I bet normally he had people that did that for him, but he goes out and he, he cuts this firewood and they put it on the donkey and they head out on this journey. And it's a three-day journey from what it sounds like that they're, they're just traveling. They're walking. We don't know how much these other three guys really know what's going on, but I imagine it was a, a tough walk. I can kind of fathom what the conversation was between Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham going, hey, son, you know I love you, right? Yeah, dad, I know you love me. No matter what happens, there are more I. You know I love you, right? Okay, dad, you're being kind of weird. <laughs> what's going on? Is this, uh, you know, is this is... Uncle Lot told me about a time you got weird by like this and God was talking to you and you made everybody, all the men, go up to the mountains and do some surgery. Is that what this is about? No, come on, we, we did that already, right? I don't know. I don't know what that conversation was, but I can't imagine it was a comfortable conversation. And they get up and after three days, Abraham looks up. He must know the region. He sees the area off in the distance and he tells the other two, it's okay, you guys hang out here with the animals and... and uh, Isaac and I, we're going to go up there, I'm going to worship, and then we are going to come back. And as I read this, it's just kind of this sigh of relief in me that, that Abraham trusted God so much that he knew that he was going to come back with his son. I mean, what faith that is. Like, he was going to be obedient to God. He was going to go forward with it, but he knew that God was going to somehow provide a way. And again, Hebrews kind of gives us some context to that. Hebrews tells us, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who he had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what we see here is Abraham knew that he had this confidence in God, that God had promised him this son, and through this son, his lineage was gonna be passed on. And so he had confidence that even if he went through with this, even if he had to sacrifice his son, that God would raise his son from the dead. And so he was able to say to those servants, hey, we're coming back. So they head off, just father and son. It says uh, they loaded up all the firewood on the back of Isaac, and Abraham took the torch and the knife, and I think that makes sense because that's why we have kids, right? So they carry heavy stuff for us when we get old. And they head up. And this probably is not Isaac's first, uh, you know, worship outing. So he's not his first time doing an offering. And so he's looking around. He's like, Dad, wait a second. Did we forget the sheep? 
We can't all the way up here. You've been carrying that torch, and we got the knife. We got all this firewood. We don't have a sheep. What are we doing? We have to go all the way back. I don't know what his thoughts were. But then Abraham, again, expresses this great faith. He says, no, God will provide for himself a lamb. And again, just this confidence that I don't understand this, son. I don't know what's happening here, but I have confidence in God. I've tried it too many times my own way. I've tried to, to fix things and make things work on my own, and I'm done doing that. I'm ready to just to trust God. And they get up on top of this hill, and uh, father and son, they're building this altar together. Stack all the wood up. I don't know if they went with like the teepee method of firewood stacking or the log cabin or whatever they did. They get their their firewood there, and Isaac gets bound up. And again, just thinking about this, Abraham's an old man at this point in time. Isaac's a teenager. So just the obedience, the trust that Isaac has in his father to allow his father to bound, bind him up like that. They, they put him up on top of the altar. Abraham's probably, I would imagine, that he's probably weeping at this point, at least I would be, and he holds the knife, and he's not really sure, but he's going to be obedient. And he gets that knife up, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham responds the exact same way he did at the beginning of the story. He says, here am I. And God says, don't lay a finger on that kid. And I would imagine Abraham was like, sure thing, good. Yes, absolutely, I won't touch him. What do you want me to do? I will get him, let's, no, let's not do this. Yes, I'm listening, I'm ready to obey. And he looks up and there he kind of turns and he sees this ram stuck in a bunch of bushes. Now I grew up in an area that had a lot of blackberry bushes and I've heard stories of like lambs, like big sheep, you know, like big woolly domesticated sheep specifically bred to have lots and lots of fur. I've heard stories of them getting stuck in bushes. But I've never really heard of a wild animal, a wild ram getting stuck in the bushes. And just the the miracle of this, that that God has provided in this incredible way that this lamb or this, this ram who spends its life eating bushes finds itself stuck in the bushes and they walk over and they, they grab this animal and they bring it back and they sacrifice it. And they say, this altar, this place represents the place that God would provide. And the story goes on to say that from this day forth, that place, that mountain is known as the place that God provides. Years later, that exact same mountain is where Solomon built his temple. And for generations, faithful people would come to that temple with their tithes and offerings, probably feeling like, I don't know if I have enough to give. Could I do this? And they remember the story that God provides. Even with the things that matter most to us, we can trust them over to God because he is a provider. What a a beautiful but challenging story this is, right? And and I think as, as we've kind of processed through, I imagine a lot of you, have been asking the question, kind of the obvious question that comes out of this is, what is God doing here? At least that's the question that's, that's forefront in my mind. Why would God test Abraham this way? Why does God test me the way that I am tested? Why do I have to go through the pain and the suffering that is in this world? Why do the things that matter most to me sometimes get taken away from me or sometimes hurt the way they do? And I think as we ask that question, it's really helpful for us to just to kind of remind ourselves of some of the things that we know to be true of God, some of the things that we see 
the scripture, the Bible pointing to about God. And the first thing is that God tests us from his perspective of being all-knowing. See, for me, that was a, a really helpful thing for me to kind of put this in perspective, that, that God knows all things. And so when God tested Abraham, God knew exactly how Abraham would respond. He knew that Abraham would be faithful. He knew that Abraham was going to go up to that mountain, that he was going to get to that point. He knew that that bush was going to grow the way that that bush grew, that he was going to provide the rain months earlier so that that bush grew up in the way that it did. He knew that that ram was going to get hungry at that particular point in time and crawl into that bush looking for food and was going to get stuck and that God was going to rescue Isaac in the exact way that God did. And, and I think that's a really healthy perspective for us to have in mind because if we don't have that perspective, then God is a really sadistic, sick person. If God is just sitting back going, I hope this works out. We'll see how this goes. I think this is going to be a good thing. I know lots of stuff, so I think this will work. Why would, no, that's, that's ugly. And I think even in my own life, when I'm facing challenges, when I'm feeling um, tested and hurt and, and pressured to know that the God of the universe, the God who knows all things, the God who is omniscient, knows me, knows my situation, knows my story and is working something out for his plan and his good. And it's a hard thing to get my head around. It's not always easy. It doesn't always make it a clean picture, but it gives me perspective. And if that's true, if God is all-knowing and God tests us from his place of being all-knowing, then I think the second point kind of that's worth us kind of talking about is God tests us for our experience, not his own experience. So God didn't test Abraham because he needed to see how Abraham would respond. God already knew how Abraham would respond. If God is all-knowing, he knew exactly what Abraham was going to do. He didn't have to test Abraham to find that out. It's not like a teacher that tests their students periodically to see if they're getting the material. God knew that already. In fact, God tested Abraham, I believe, because Abraham needed that experience. Abraham needed to go through that, that God was building a legacy, a nation. He was building his redemptive story through the life of Abraham, and Abraham and Isaac needed to go through that experience. In the book of James, thousand, you know, a couple thousand years after this, uh, this story in Genesis, James is writing about this same kind of concept, and he says this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials And you know that your testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the story, I think, of what is going on here is God is testing Abraham so that he will be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And the challenge for us is to consider that a joy. I think James tells us to consider that a joy because that doesn't come naturally to us, right? I don't have to teach my kids to consider it a joy to eat candy. They get it, right? This is joy. Yeah, that's awesome. But to experience trials and suffering and pain and yet know that through those challenges, God is shaping us and molding us into the people he's designed us to be is a powerful reminder. Another thing here just to, to kind of note is that God tests us so that our lives can tell a bigger story. And that's his story. See, you don't have to be a a Bible scholar to see that this ram in this story represents Jesus. It's a picture 
of our need for salvation. It's a picture of our need for God to provide for us. And here you have, when Abraham is, must be at his darkest hour, the most painful thing imaginable, in that moment, God rescues him. God provides this ram as a substitute for his son. And on that same mount, the temple is built. On that same basic area, thousands of years later, Jesus goes on trial Jesus is convicted of a crime that he didn't do. He is hung on a cross that he is punished for the sins that you and I did, being our substitute ram and raising from the dead, conquering death. And Abraham could not have known that. There's no way Abraham knew that in that moment, his life was telling that story. And in the same way, the trials, the suffering, the pain we go through, I don't think we could ever fully know the story, the narrative that God is telling in our lives. We've all met those people who maybe are dying of cancer, yet walk through it with incredible faith and joy and perseverance. And we see the comfort and the love of God in their life. We've met people who have been really taken advantage of by other people and yet choose to find forgiveness and love and we, we see the forgiveness of love of God. And we, we're reminded that the story is not our story. It's God's story. In fact, after this whole situation with the, the ram, God comes back to Abraham and reaffirms his promise to Abraham and again says, I want you to know this, that I'm going to bless you and through you, the nations of the world will be blessed. In other words, this is not about you. My blessing you is not just about you. It's about what I want to tell, what I want to do. It's my redemptive story in history. And I think that's a great reminder for me and for you that my life is not just about my comfort. It's just not just about my pleasure or my blessing. It is about my life being a blessing to other people. It is about my life telling the redemptive story of Jesus. And we see that played out here in such an awesome way as God, our rescuer. So I know that that doesn't kind of tie this up in a neat bow. We could preach sermon after sermon and go through class after class of why does God allow suffering and what is the role of testing and where is God in different situations. Um, But I kind of want to leave this part here to to talk a little bit about what we can learn from this story as far as how we can see our lives move from being lives of messy faith to lives of solid faith or even maybe more solid faith, right? Less chaotic faith. And I think there's some examples that we can pull from the life of Abraham. The first example is his attitude, this here am I attitude. The beginning of the story, it starts out, God calls Abraham and how does he respond? Here am I. It's this open-handed attitude of saying, okay, God, I I trust you. Uh, I will follow you. At the end of this story, His response is the same. The angel calls back out Abraham. He says, here am I. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I find it much easier to say, here am I to God when good things are happening. Would you agree with me on that? Like, hey, there's this great opportunity for you. It's going to be a lot of fun, and here am I. Let's roll. I'm ready. But hey, you know, you're going to have to deal with pain and suffering in your life. And I'm kind of like, no, I'm not sure I'm there. How about he was there? Go take him. Do that with him, not me. But this perspective of, okay, this openness, saying, okay, God, I don't fully understand your plan for my life, but I, under, I trust you, and I know that you have better direction for my life than, than I have for my own life. 
And then the second kind of thing I see, and this really comes from, like I was talking about at the beginning of this message, the, the perspective I see from all of Abraham's life. And I think Abraham built this habit, this kind of tradition almost, of collecting sort of what we call here spiritual keepsakes, right? These physical markers in his life to remind him of the work that God was doing in his life. How many of you guys have keepsakes? Anybody have keepsakes somewhere in your attic or something like that? You got a little box, right? You open that up from time to time when you're feeling sappy and sentimental, right? And you pull out that Valentine's card. And that Valentine's card, there's nothing significant or valuable about the card itself, right? It's just a piece of paper that, you know, some seven-year-old punched out for you or whatever. Yet, when you hold that physical thing, it reminds you of the story. It reminds you of being there, right? You can kind of begin to sense that emotion again. It reminds you of the details, the smell, the texture, all of that. That's why we keep those things. And I think there's a valuable lesson of kind of having some sort of physical markers in our life, some sort of physical kind of aspects that you can kind of go back to and say, okay, I remember that. I was hurting and God brought me hope. Or there's this point that I thought my marriage was coming to an end, and in this moment, God rescued it. And so there's this rock that sits out in my garden. And so every time I see that rock, I can remember that. Or we were talking about this kind of a staff, and one of the ladies on staff said, you know, when I gave my life to Christ, it was not a, a real kind of ceremonious thing, and I don't remember the date or anything, but when my daughter gave her life to Jesus, I wanted to really mark that. So I set it in her Outlook calendar, and so every year we get a reminder on that day, and she has kind of her spiritual birthday. And it's just, it's something tactical, it's practical, it's a reminder. There's another family in our church that they removed a bunch of um, idols out of their house from a previous religious tradition. And as they removed those idols, they kind of removed the, the main altar off their wall, and they, they got this cross, and they wanted to put that cross up in place of where the altar was because they wanted to have this reminder that God had rescued them, that God had brought them hope and salvation. And so every time it's in their bedroom, and every time they look at that, they can remember that. Maybe it's a painting. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is for each of us. Maybe it's a plant you plant. But I think there's some real value of remembering these things so that when it comes time for us to be faithful, it's not just us trying to muster up our, our faith muscle and try to be more faithful, but it's, it's about this reminder saying, no, I can be faithful to God because he has been faithful over and over again to me. You probably noticed when you came in here, we've got some, some rocks. Um, so what we're gonna do now is I wanna give us a, a practical opportunity to do this now. And uh, we're gonna physically build an altar here up front. It's pretty awesome looking at this altar and realizing that this altar now represents hundreds of stories. Hundreds from this service, hundreds from the first service. Two weeks, it's gonna be over in the Mandarin service and it's gonna represent even more stories of God's faithfulness of God providing, of God's grace in our life. And, and it's so important for us, for me, to remember this because in those times of challenge, in those times of struggle, that's the last thing on my mind. And we need these reminders. So I encourage you to kind of think of your own habits, your own life. Is there ways to be reminded, reminded of God's faithfulness? Let me pray for us as we, we close out. God, you are faithful. You, uh, 
you keep us, you guide us, you direct us. God, we praise you that even when we fail, even when we screw up and, and don't have faith in you, you still are faithful to us. That when we don't keep our promises, you keep yours. So I pray for us as a church. I pray that we are a church that is faithful to you, a church that trusts you, a church that experiences the joy of getting to be part of your story. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.